Okay, welcome to the inaugural episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. I'm Craig. And uh, for today's first movie, we decided to go with something uh, in memory of uh, Wes Craven. Yeah, gone too soon, that man. We thought we would look at some Wes Craven classics, choose one or two to go with, uh, maybe for our first couple episodes. And uh, today's choice was... The People Under the Stairs. And Craig, you kind of suggested this one. Why were you... I did. You know, this is a movie I've seen many, many times uh, from the time that I was a little kid. And that's one of the reasons that I like this one so much is because it is so nostalgic. I mean, uh, while we were watching the movie, we were talking about how classically 80s it is. And as a kid of the 80s, uh, that's something that still appeals to me today. So I thought we'd give it a shot. Yeah, you know, there's a certain vibe about those 80s horror movies. You know, like when I was watching this one in the beginning, I was noticing how great the lighting was. Right. You know, like, like I'd say about the first half of the movie kind of takes place in the daylight. Right. Which is also kind of neat when you find a horror movie like that. He's going through the house and he's kind of in these creepy scenarios and these creepy settings. But he's well backlit and he's got kind of a glint off his face here you know he's he's walking through the downstairs uh basement with a with a just a little a lighter little thick lighter right yeah yeah <clears throat> you can clearly see the background behind him and he's so super well lit i mean you can tell it's it's not um i mean wes craven is a far now beyond uh, his roots as a uh, indie film director sure. he's got the big budget he's got the big stuff and this movie is a little different from his others in that i think that they're it has a little more, I don't want to say more of a mainstream appeal because it's clearly a, a true a horror movie, but it's not as gross. It's not as gritty in many ways. It's not as dirty in the cinematography. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. I mean, there's a little bit of innuendo here and there that may be a little bit mature, but this is the kind of movie that I really liked when I was a kid because I felt like times are so different nowadays. Kids are, ah, you know, it makes me sound old. Kids are so sheltered these days, but when I was a kid growing up, there were these horror movies that I think were intended for a wide audience, you know, horror fans, but they were also accessible to kids. Um, they're horror movies about kids, kind of for kids, kind of in the vein of like uh, The Monster Squad um, or even something like The Goonies. It kind of has that vibe to it. Towards the end, it starts to get a little bit darker, but uh, there's still a lot of fun. You know, it seems like a fun uh, kind of intent there. <clears throat> yeah, kind of an adventure aspect to it. Right. Almost like The Gate. Yeah, way, sure. Isn't it? Another one of my favorites. Yeah, this <laughs> is kind of like that. Well, I mean, it starts out, you've got this boy, um, and his name is Fool. Right. And he's introduced to us through this sort of tarot card reading where they bring up the Fool card. And it's his sister. Right? Yeah, it's his sister. His sister, Ruby, um, who's doing it. And, and it's really a neat the way that it starts. It just... Um, you don't see any actors, you see the credits, and then you see them kind of doing the tarot cards getting laid down, and she's talking about the fool. Sure, and there's some pretty heavy-handed uh, foreshadowing going on there, but uh, <laughs> I think that's probably intentional. I don't think that's meant to sneak by us. Uh, he kind of out lays out the plot there in the very beginning with this, this tarot reading. Tough road you got this year. Judgment. Death. And Mr. Devil. <laughs> Glad it's your birthday reading and not mine. So you kind of have an idea what to expect. You know this kid's going to be thrown into the fire, uh, but still there are enough twists and turns that uh, it's it's kind of a roller coaster ride, a little bit crazy sometimes. Yeah, he's sort of setting out on a journey, isn't he? I yeah. mean, it's it seems almost like the hero's journey sure. in many ways. Um, well, he lives in the ghetto. Right. <laughs> we don't know. It could be New York. It could be anywhere. But I think the point, it, and it's funny... There's a part of me that thought, okay, well, the movie's really dated. The way that they're talking about 
the ghetto. Right. They're calling it like a place, like it's the name of the place. <laughs> like like in uh, Little Shop of Horrors when they're uh, living on Skid Row, right, like right. it's the name of their city. And um but in a sense, you know, with that introduction of the fool and they're sort of talking about the ghetto as sort of this place, it sort of makes it abstract. This abstract idea that here's this young boy who's in a bad spot in a bad neighborhood and area who needs to grow up. You know, he's literally, his name is Poindexter. Right. <laughs> Which is sort of that name that you give to people who are, like, super smart. Right. But Outcasts, they, nerds. <clears throat> that's right. But they call him Fool. He's going to be a Poindexter one day when he becomes a man. But right now he's a fool, and he's got to go on this journey in order to sort of, like, get his manhood. Yeah, and he's a character that you empathize with right away. I mean, all this stuff is thrown in his face. You know, you've got the the Ving Rhames character, is that right? Mm -hmm. um, who is constantly egging him on, trying to get him... Leroy. Uh, Leroy, there you go. Uh, always reminding him that uh, the weight of the world falls on his shoulders. You know your mama got a cancer in her she can't afford to have taken out? Leroy! Yeah, the thing any doctor could take out just like that. But you ain't got no money, and you ain't gonna have no money unless... Ah! You, you know, his mom's got cancer and she's going to die if they don't have money. They've got, uh, they, they're three days behind on their rent, which apparently in the contract means that they now have to pay triple. Otherwise, they're going to be immediately <laughs> evicted. Um, uh, and uh, so, you know, this kid, his sister, you know, is a hooker apparently. And, you know, the, uh, so everybody's kind of counting on this kid. Um, and it almost becomes, I, I noticed about, uh, halfway, three quarters of the way through, it's almost kind of a Jack and the Beanstalk story, uh, where he has to climb into this dangerous world and face all these uh, obstacles and scary folks and whatnot, and then uh, comes back with a reward, but just like in Jack and the Beanstalk, he has to go back, or feels like he has to go back for some reason, and then you have the climax where he defeats the giant. You know, you're exactly <clears throat> right. I mean, it's almost literally that. Because what is the thing that um, that Leroy tells him? He says, well, if you want to if you wanna uh, save your family, basically, you're so destitute. If you want to save your family, I have a treasure map with some gold. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> that he found in, in the basement? I, I don't the know. back of a liquor store. Back of a liquor store, right. <laughs> it, it was, uh, it's basically the address, isn't it, uh -huh. to... Um, to the, uh, landlord's, the landlord's house, right? Right, <laughs> and, and the social commentary here, I think, is not uh, too uh, hidden as well. You've got the ghetto and, and these downtrodden people, and then you've got the evil uh, Caucasian uh, kind of ruling overlords with these uh, malevolent intentions. And one last family in the Lenox Avenue building, then it's clear to tear down. We build a nice, neat condominium. We get clean people in there. Lots of nice wood for my fireplace, lots of nice... Money. And money. From the beginning, you're rooting for this kid. You're rooting for Fool. You want him to stick it to the man. You want, uh, especially these folks who are pretty twisted in their own right, I think kids would find that storyline appealing, and adults do too, which is why I think I still enjoy it for its nostalgia, even though... You're right, it does seem dated. There's a lot about it that's very entrenched in the 80s. That kind of universality of that fairy tale yeah. story, too, is still, it still works. I think it still works. It's entertaining. Yeah, well, we can all kind of put ourselves, if we weren't kids when we watched it, and I was, you know, and you were yeah. too, um, if we weren't kids when we watched it, you can put yourself back into that mindset like you do with any fairy tale. Oh, I remember when I was that young, and I was that sure. naive, and the world was a big, scary place, and... Um, 
thank goodness I was never put in that position where I had to somehow go on this quest, you know, to sort of save my family. It's a terrifying thing for a child. It is a terrifying thing, but don't... And maybe this is just the horror fan in me, but I think as a kid, as scared as I would have been to be thrown in those situations, it was fun to live vicariously through these characters. You know, you want to be brave. You want to stand up and, and face the bad guy, as this kid eventually does. Uh, and, and you want the good guy to win. And you, you know, you, you've got that kind of hero fantasy thing going on. Yeah, it's, a, it's very much like a fantasy movie, even more so than a horror movie, really. Yeah. It kind of gets pigeonholed as a horror movie because Wes Craven was such a horror director, but... This is one of his that kind of branches out of that. It becomes a sort of child adventure story yeah. with kind of enough grossness in it that gets the R rating. Right, and, and you know, you've got the, the language there and stuff, too. I, I don't think that it's something that would appeal to a wide market of young people, mm-hmm. uh, really young people today, um, but I miss that. I miss that in movies. I feel like you don't see that very often. I'm, I'm sure there are a few examples, but... Um, you know, that's a really good point. I mean, when this movie opened, um, I think it did like something like $55 million, And it was it opened at the number one spot. And believe it or not, it lasted for, I think, 10 weeks at number one wow. in the theaters. This kind of movie, if made today, would be made in a very niche way. Yeah. It would be made to appeal to a teenage audience exclusively. Or it would be made to sort of appeal to the gross-out crowd you know, right. that wants to see that or, or whatever. Or it would be so tamed down and lame that it, it could, you know, consciously get that PG-13 rating so that families could kind of go out and see it and be a little more Goonie-esque, right. you know. This one sort of has a little bit of all of that, yeah. you know, in it. And as a result, I don't know, it's got a little staying power. It's kind of strange. I think so. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, we were talking before we watched. Uh, you said you hadn't seen this since around the time that it came out. This is one of those movies that can come on and... It, it just entertains me, you know. I, whether I catch it from the beginning or whether I catch it in the middle, uh, I always find myself watching it when and and when you said let's do it today, I was like, yeah, I haven't seen that in a while. It'll be it'll be fun to revisit. Well, so it starts out, and uh, Fool is uh, basically Leroy decides right. uh, to convince him that the best way to save his family is to go into this house where the landlords live, and the landlords are twisted. Um, there's mommy and daddy. I don't know right. if they're ever given a name, are they? I think I read somewhere that at some point uh, the mom says the dad's name. I, I think it's Eldon or something like that. But for the most part, yeah, they call each other mommy and daddy, which is sick in its own right, considering the fact that it's revealed later on in the plot that they are, in fact, brother and sister. Yeah, this is a majorly <laughs> dysfunctional family. Right, right. <laughs> um, so they go in, and this the, where they live in is like a funeral home. It is an old funeral yeah, home, Yeah, right? yeah, it's like their, fam- their family legacy. Uh, apparently they've been running this funeral home for generations, and apparently... The, the hood, you know, the, the ghetto has known that this is a place to stay away from um, for, for quite some time. Fool's grandfather remembers being a child being warned away from this place. All sorts of rumors about what's gone on in that place. Never proved it because the police didn't take it serious. But believe me, when I was a kid, none of us ever walked past that house. And so he goes in um, with, uh, with Ving Rhames' character, who's Leroy, and then this other guy, Spencer, Right. Who's 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 like the gangbanger white guy. And uh, the two of them are uh, convinced him to dress up in this um what is it like Bear Scouts? Bear Scouts, uh huh. Go up to the go up to the house. He's unsuccessful at getting in. The uh, mommy basically fends him off. But then uh, uh, he goes back and uh, and Spencer says, Well let me give it a shot. 
Sure. And then Spencer, you know, the, the mastermind, uh, does make his way into the house, and that's the last we see of him for a while. Uh, and he's gone, so Leroy is convinced that Spencer is uh, pulling the heist on his own and going to cut these guys out. So, also a criminal mastermind, Leroy decides to ditch the plan right away uh, <laughs> and just resort to uh, just breaking a window. Yeah, you know? it's funny how they had this whole elaborate thing with these costumes and everything. They're going to get in, and they send the boy in, and then there's this ploy. It, it takes them about five minutes yeah. to decide, uh-huh. oh, I'll get mind. the crowbar, we're going to break the back window, <laughs> we're going to get in. And it's remarkably easy for him to get in. It is, and then from the time they're inside there, it's like a game of mousetrap. Uh, you know, there's these devices all over the place. Doors are swinging, closing, locking on their own. Um, I actually think, you know, watching this again this time, I, I think that uh, uh, Chris Columbus may owe a lot. Uh, <laughs> it is a bit of a Home Alone atmosphere right? to this. Right. I mean, there's the dog, right? Right, that, there's the dog. Well, the minute he breaks open the door, some there's like a shelving that slides back. It's all rigged up. I yeah. mean, it's, it's got all kinds of machines. You've got the scene uh, towards the end where Fool is... Um, kind of taunting uh, the parents and he, he uh, lures the, the evil dad into the fireplace so that he can chuck bricks down into his face. Hold it. I think I hear something. Bombs away. Ah! Oh! Oh! This is one of those smart bricks. It's, I mean, it's straight it's, out of home. Right, exactly. Well, that and the front door. Yeah, oh, the electrified front door. I forgot all about that. Man. <laughs> he grabs the, he grabs the, and this is how they get rid of the dog, is they gra- the f- fool, when he first tries the front door from the inside, um, it's electrified, um, the, the, the knob is. And so uh, when the dog starts attacking Leroy, the fool says, hurry up, bring the, drag the dog over here. And they get this sort of chain where he, gr- he grabs the front uh, door and uh, he, he electrocutes himself through Leroy, through the dog. And I guess it's, not powerful enough to kill two people, but enough to <laughs> but stun the dog. For, yeah, for, uh, conveniently for a while. Uh, we should talk about this dog a little bit, too, okay? <laughs> now, this dog, this poor dog, is uh, owned by these sadomasochists and is used to guard uh, their treasures and their home. Uh, and they put this dog through a hell of a lot. I mean, he's chasing people through the walls. He's getting electrocuted. Uh, he comes to a, a pretty gruesome demise at the end. Oh, shit. You kill Prince! And in addition to that, you have all of these scenes where the dog is attacking people. The dog is a Rottweiler, of course, in classic horror fashion. The whole time I'm thinking, especially when this dog is on top of the kid, I'm like, uh, willing suspension of disbelief is one thing, but I have a Rottweiler. If, that's, <laughs> if that sucker was going to town, I, I, I question whether or not they as, would have gotten out with as few scratches as they did. As but. vicious as that Rottweiler was, it was so easy for them to eventually, like, I don't know, knock it off their arm. Sure. Or have it fighting them on the floor for a while. <laughs> or just push for, it through. For a good long while. You know, they'd wrestle around with that dog for a while. Oh, yeah. At one point, <clears throat> they're, in the, they're in the walls, which are, you know, the walls of this house are almost like small rooms. Yeah. You know, and, and, and hallways of their own, and the dogs like chasing them down the the walls, which have to be like, you know, each hallway and each turn is like six feet. Sure. But somehow this dog is running slower than these people uh-huh. who are making their way through the darkness. Through this cavernous house, we never could figure out the geography of the house. It made uh, no these, sense. These kids are crawling up and through the walls and through the vents and. Uh, going in one hallway, coming out another hallway that looks surprisingly like the first hallway, but apparently is different. <laughs> and you know, it's part of the fantasy, though, right? I mean, it's it's like the Jack and the Beanstalk story. You have the, like the king and the queen, and I mean, their dog's name is Prince. Yeah, right. You know, you and go. and uh, he's got his own room, and uh, they have this huge cavernous castle of a house. 
you could siege, lay siege with an army and never uh-huh. find, you know, half of it. Um, and then there's a girl. There's a girl. There's a princess, a princess right? Um, and her name was... A- uh, Alice, Alice, right? Alice, that's right. Another kind of loaded name there. My, my name is Fool. What's yours? Alice. Don't be scared. You, you never seen a brother before? Never had a brother. You know, I was trying to make connections to other Craven films, and I remembered that one, the heroine from uh, Elm Street 3 and 4, maybe, uh, is named Alice. And then I re- remembered that Craven didn't really have anything to do with all the sequels except right. for New Nightmare, so yeah. uh, my theory went out the window. But um, there were definitely other Cravenisms in there that I saw. Did you notice any of them? Well, such as his propensity for like using dysfunctional families. Right, dysfunctional you know? families. I, I I wonder if he had some kind of mommy complex because uh, you know I'm thinking of Nancy's mom in Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh you know, yeah, that just horrible. And then uh, here we've got both horrible parent figures, but the mom's got this very mommy dearest vibe going on, you know, with, with her look, uh, the makeup and the hair and, and the complete control over her daughter. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, there's that, there's the shades, sort of the shades of the hills have eyes, yes. you know, in that majorly messed up dysfunctional family of mutants or whatever. Um, in this case, you got mother and brother sleep, uh, brother and sister sleeping with each other. Right. And you have all of these sort of mutant, um, we, they're supposed to be their, their boys, once um, Fool runs into Alice, um, the, one of the first things she tells him is, oh, kind of gives him the exposition on what sure. the house is. Everybody's locked in. Nobody can come out. Nobody can come out. Um, and uh, the, the basement, the people under the stairs yep. of the title are supposedly basically her brothers. Yeah, and they're they're rejected children. You know, they they've been collecting children uh, apparently from the ghetto. We we find out later. Um, yeah, they're but, not they're literal children at all. Yeah. <laughs> right, uh, and and when they prove unsatisfactory, when they see evil or speak evil or hear evil, then they are disfigured uh, to to suit their crime and uh, are locked in the basement where. Uh, Alice tells Fool they are given some sort of food and they should be, you know, happy in their own way, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so I guess weird. Alice kind of trying to delude herself there a little she's bit. She's really, know. yeah, that's a lot of um, wish hope. Well, she's had a lot of time. She being the only person who's more or less, you know, let run free in the house right. and has as normal of a life as you can with these people. You know, she's like their princess in the tower where they're keeping under a lock and key. Um, except from the guy in the walls who oh, is not in the stairs. Right. He's apparently one of the brothers who sort of broke free. Yeah, he broke free, and I guess he and Alice have kind of established this relationship uh, that the parents know about um, but try to you know keep, keep from happening. But His name's uh, Roach. Roach, right? Because he's and, in the walls. And his, his tongue is cut out because he tried to call the police when, when he was being tested as, as a, a potential child. Roach is my friend. Roach? I'm Point Dexter. Everybody calls me fool. You sure got the names, huh? And he proves very helpful in in guiding Alice and Fool around. Uh, At first he seems kind of menacing, but uh, you come to find that he's really a... a hero in his own right. Yeah, that was one of those sort of um, horror tropes where at first when Fool's exploring the basement when he discovers, oh, something is wrong because here's uh, dead uh, Spencer, a hand reaches over and grabs him and, uh, you know, he wrestles with this guy for a while who we later find out is Roach. Right. And, you know, later on when he's, you know, kind of around, it's, it's Roach's who's kind of unbeknownst to him guiding him around the house almost by scaring him yeah. into the right places. Sure. And so you think, oh, there's this evil demon. It turns out to be the nice guy. Right. The nice demon or whatever. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, un- unfortunately, those those uh, characters tend to not last very long, and poor Roach kind of no, uh, he gets it. doesn't Yeah, he, he gets it. Uh, it's un- it's unfortunate. Well, um, but you know, he, he dies a hero's death. Yeah, uh, I, I kind of wonder if if that's not maybe the best thing that could happen for him. And maybe I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but um, at the end, these people under the stairs apparently are liberated, and you kind of see them walking off down the street. Uh, and I, I find myself wondering, you know, what kind of life is this going to be for them? Yeah, it's going to be very different. They've not seen the sunlight ever. <laughs> yeah, and they're, and they're, you know, we haven't really uh, said what they look like. They're quite ghoulish. You know, we, we the practical makeup I actually really enjoyed. Yeah, it was, um, it was uh, you know, again, it, it shows its age, but um, there's something to be said for real practical makeup effects, and, and you could tell that there was no, I mean, obviously CGI wasn't even around, so everything had to be practical, but they're, they're kind of ghoulish, and uh, we made jokes. Who did you say they remind you of? 80s punk band. 80s punk band. band. Yeah, it looked like uh, Motley Crue there Motley for a Crue second. Motley Crue a little bit, or uh, the, and the you cast said it was Thriller. It right? was pretty much like Thriller, <clears throat> yeah, especially there when, um, <laughs> when they assemble. And all of this stuff serves to be, you know, really pretty scary. I, I think even uh, not just for kids, but for horror fans in general. I, I don't think it's necessarily. I, I guess it depends on what scares you. It, it's not uh, torture porn. You know, it's no. a very different kind of thing. You're right, and it's not as gross. In fact, the only, aside from, you know, like gunshots going off, somebody getting their hand bit or something right. like that, and, and just sort of a little bit of blood here and there, the grossest it really gets um, is when Leroy finally bites it. Um, when uh, I think he's lured down to the basement, the guy shoots him with the uh, several times, oh, he shoots him several times at the top of the stairs yeah. uh, with his shotgun, which is where he's just blasting holes in everything left and right with the shotgun. Um, and then they take him down. Uh, and uh, and father basically strings him up downstairs and starts tearing his body apart. Right. Clearly, he's eating some eating of them, him. Yeah. and then he's feeding the scraps and uh, to the uh, to the ghoulish uh, brothers downstairs. Getting back to what you were saying about Roach and some of these isms of Wes Craven. Yeah, you know, another thing is sort of this um, fundamentalist. Um, religious, kind of like this religious fundamentalism kind of gone awry. These parents who, you know, every time they're their main yeah. exclamation is, oh, they can rot in hell. Yeah, burn in hell. hell. You know, we could count how many times. I have no idea how many times, but it was uh, pretty regular. It, You know, they weren't, they didn't come across as being particularly religious, but you certainly got that Shades vibe. Yeah, you got that vibe that they, you know, in, in their dress, particularly the mom, it was, you know, a very old-fashioned, old-style, almost 1950s uh, conservative kind of look, made to look grotesque through her makeup and, and uh, the lighting and whatnot. But, um, yeah, you, you certainly got that. Then, of course, they break that mold too by <laughs> well I hope it's it's a broken mold by you know being incestuous brother and sister and that's true and, well and, and the dad you know makes gets himself up in this a gimp outfit I guess is that what <laughs> that was the creepy you know when I was a kid and that is the only thing I remember about this movie because it's been decades since I'd seen it but once once he came out in that gimp outfit in that whole sort of S&M kind yeah. of studded uh, black leather head to toe with the face mask and everything thing it took me right back, and I remembered, oh, that is what freaked me out about this movie so much, yeah. was this crazy, weird S&M, <laughs> like, get-up, his hunting outfit, almost. Yeah, and, and I have to, you know, really give kudos to those actors. They were very effectively creepy. I mean, they were they were scary, um, and, oh, yeah. you know, I can't, I, you asked me when we were watching if I recognized uh, the actor who played the dad, and I, I don't, but I remember reading that... Um, 
Craven saw them. They played husband and wife on Twin Peaks, apparently. Oh, really? Uh, and he saw them, their performance there, uh, and and wanted them for this movie and, and got them. And I, I think he cast well because they were they're freaky. Oh, they were freaky. I mean, and then there was also that bit where um, it's toward the end, but he's um, you know hunting them through the walls, and I think he breaks into a room that's filled with candles, and there is some religious paraphernalia on the walls. Yeah. Some but you're right; it's not explicit. It's not like in Carrie. You know, where they make uh, yeah, the girl right. bend down in front and pray or right. anything like that. It's always very implied. Um, and I know that was one thing that Wes Craven comes from a fundamentalist background. And I know that when he, um, one of the stories that he tells was when, uh, or maybe Sean Cunningham tells. Um, Sean Cunningham, who went on to do the Friday the 13th movie, right. is the guy who was friends with Wes, who uh-huh. kind of got him into horror. And I believe they went together on um, The Last House on the Left. Really? And he asked Wes to write this, uh, and Wes was like, jeez, I don't know if I can write horror. And his response to him was, well, you're from this um, oppressive, sort of fundamentalist religious background, so you've got all the tools you need to be able to... <laughs> you, like, you've got this sort of repressed dark side. Yeah. You know what's going to be scary. So just unleash that. And it seems like some of that comes through. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, the only thing that I had read was... And I think that Craven did this a lot. I know that he was inspired uh, for Nightmare on Elm Street by news reports that he had read uh, about uh, young people who had... Um, had such severe night terrors that they had died in their sleep. Mm. This, uh, apparently, and I I don't know the specifics, I don't remember, but he saw some sort of news piece uh, about a police raid of a home that was for something unrelated. I don't remember if it was a drug raid or or whatever, but when the police uh, raided this house, they found behind locked doors these children who had been kept in this house for presumably years and hadn't been allowed out and hadn't, you know, uh, been socialized in any way, and he was inspired uh, to write this. Daddy cut out the bad parts and put the boys in the cellar. It not that weird? Like, I mean, now, in the years since, we've had a few high-profile news reports yeah. with these strange cases. The one guy in Sweden, the mm-hmm. one guy here in America, where people have done, like, like exactly this. Yeah. Where they have locked up their kids um, and never let them see the light of day, and their house is like a fortress and booby-trapped yeah. and all that stuff. And sometimes just under the nose of the neighbors. Sure. You know? Yeah, and I you know, I don't remember anything like that from when we were kids. No. I mean, this seemed like a nightmare scenario. Not that the real-life scenario wouldn't be a nightmare. Obviously, it would be. But this seemed more like uh, a nightmare fantasy. Something that, you know, you would come up with in your imagination as kind of the worst-case scenario, being trapped by these tyrannous parents uh, who took every opportunity to punish you for the slightest uh, crime. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was cra- any other Cravenisms that you? Well, you already mentioned the Hills had eyes. Uh, I was reminded of that too. When uh, Fool first descends into the cellar, you hear these kind of ghostly voices from the shadows, saying "Fool, Fool," kind of calling to him, taunting him. And that reminded me a lot of the Hills Have Eyes in the early part before uh, the family has really seen mm-hmm. the, the mutant cannibals in the hills, but they're, they're hearing these kind of creepy things. Definitely reminiscent. I mean, you can definitely see his signature on this. Mm-hmm. It's different than the other stuff he's done. This is post-Nightmare, right? The first yes. one? Oh, yeah. yeah. Which, is, which is almost kind of bizarre because it seems almost... Gosh, I don't know what I want to say. It seems more youthful. It's it seems like a younger filmmaker to me. It does for some reason. Oh yeah. <clears throat> well, and and maybe it's the subject matter maybe. too. Maybe it's the story. I mean, it is kind of like a fairy tale. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was thinking of the gate while I was watching this. Right. You know. And maybe that's what it is. Um, he's kind of dialing himself back a little bit. 
Yeah. There was there was one shot in there in particular which jumped out at me specifically as uh, as referencing one of his earlier ones, and that is um, there's a shot toward the end of the movie when the people under the stairs get their comeuppance, and even though they've been in the basement held back by just a bunch of boards nailed up. Um, that they can't seem to break out of. Yeah. They end up being able to, like, burst through the staircases. <laughs> and through the walls. And the walls. I guess all they really needed was the proper motivation, motivation. Yeah, <laughs> to do it. Which, again, you know, it's, it's I guess maybe it's more that hero's journey, you know? Yeah. You, you got your guy coming in, he's uh, rallied the troops up, and now he's taught you in your village, your Dontrodden village, that you can stand up and fight for yourself. Absolutely. And, so, then, and there's a huge celebration in the street. Everybody's Everybody's happy. That's fine. <laughs> they just go on their merry way and pay their rent with the, the with money all the money that comes that explodes out explodes out of the house. That's right at the end. Yeah, we forgot to mention that it was a literal hidden treasure in the basement. It was. It was gold coins. Gold was, coins. He's going was, after this uh, stuff. One-eyed Willie stash. Apparently, yep. that's what it seemed like. Yeah, that's <clears> that's what happens. Um, um, Roach basically leads him to the the room where almost Scrooge McDuck like. Yes. He, he says it's not just you know money in a safe. It's just money all over the floor and coins everywhere. And for some reason, there are lit candles in there all yeah. the time uh-huh. or whatever. Um, and then um, of course, uh, it's just him now and father. Yeah. Um, because the mother's been killed. Yeah, the mother was killed earlier. Yeah. Just before that. Alice gets her revenge on the mother, uh, and that's very satisfying because she's been pretty horribly treated and abused throughout, so it's nice to kind of see the mother get what's coming to her at, at, at Alice's hands. That's uh, rewarding. Yep, yep, yep. That's right. And um, Fool leads the father downstairs into this money room uh, and uh, basically blows him up. Yeah, but first he traps him with this ingenious trick. Uh, he knows that the dad is coming and he's, you know, in this vault or whatever it is that's holding all this stuff. Um, so as a distraction, he takes a candelabra and somehow manages to insert coins into the candles the lit candles of the candelabra so that as the candles burn down periodically the coins will drop and make a noise now this is amazing this kid is supposed to be what like maybe 12 maybe (laughs) and he comes up with this brilliant idea and not only comes up with it within you know a a split second but also executes it you know i'm thinking this would take me some time oh yeah (laughs) and some steady uh hands to do but this is like 90s adventure game kind of like solving this is like king's quest type uh you know oh what what inventory do i have here oh i have a candle i have a match i can light the candle with and i have a bunch of coins and you're supposed to figure out that you jam the coins into the i mean and it it, works and it works i mean those candles must burn really fast yeah because they're releasing coins at a rate of like one every 10 seconds But, you know, it's funny you mentioned his age because I took special note of that. Um, he mentions it early on um, when he says, uh, when they're first breaking into the house with Leroy, he says, uh, Listen, Leroy, this breaking and entering might not be so smart. I mean, it's the first day of my 13th birthday. Could be unlucky. In one sense, it's like, well, this poor kid has no party, you know, that nobody's paid any attention to the fact that he has this birthday because he's such a destitute, you know, thing. But in another sense, it's the first day as a teenager. Yeah, it's kind of a coming of age kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. it's it, becoming a man, standing up, being the man of the house, taking care of business, and he does. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I thought that a lot of the, um, the the battle scenes I, I call them battle scenes you know when they're kind of mano a mano with the with the parents sure were kind of and this is maybe where you, when you were talking earlier about how you felt like this was maybe a little more dialed back 
almost Three Stooges-esque. Yeah, definitely. You know, you talked about Home Alone and they're dropping the, the things down and, and these people have just rubber faces and rubber bodies and stuff. It's like the, the bricks can bounce off of them right. and iron pokers can bounce off of them and they kind of and get up and almost yeah. like look around with their eyes like they're in some cartoon. Yeah, the, I mean, and the parents are very sinister. I mean, I think they, you get the sense that they pose a real threat, that they are a real danger, but when it comes right down to it, they seem to be pretty easily foiled. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of convenient at times. I remember one time the dad goes lunging for Fool and Fool simply steps out of the way and the dad just nails his face right into the wall and <laughs> flounders over backwards and is incapacitated for a good 15 seconds while the kids have time to crawl through a hole in the wall and get away. Yeah, um, so there's some convenience there, but, but I don't know. But that is tempered with the fact that we're dealing with some really nasty subject matter. Right. I mean, there's implications that the father is um, molesting the girl. Yeah, he went there a little bit. You know, we were talking about that It. it Early on, there's, you know, maybe some subtle suggestion. Maybe it's just because it's so uncomfortable between the father and the daughter. But later on, uh, there's a scene where it becomes pretty apparent. Yeah, that's kind of at the apex of the movie where um, they're sort of in their girl of the tower moment. Because Fool actually gets out of the house. Right. He rolls down the roof and he falls into what looked like it was only a couple (laughs) feet of water, but must have been more than that. Um, and runs out. And again, like that hero, he's got to go back in. Like you said, Jack of the Beanstalk, he's got to go back in and save the princess. In the meantime, they have the princess chained up in the attic, i.e. the tower, you know. They got her tied up and Fool finds a way back into the house and back up through a chimney that comes up the brick wall right behind her where she's chained. Right. And that's the moment in which the father comes in in his total getup. And uh, she's like, let me out of here, please. And he kind of stands there, and he just sort of massages his crotch mm. for just a second. Very creepy, and, and and pretty subtle. I mean, the he's in all black, and he's lit mostly from the back. So if you aren't paying close attention, you might miss it. And it's not something that's really lingered on. It kind of happens quickly, and then it goes on. Yeah. After that, immediately the conclusion that he jumps to is that Fool and Alice are doing it, yeah. uh, for lack of a better word, yeah. um, and, and you can tell that then he's fueled not only by his insanity, but by jealousy too, and he's kind of out to get both of them at that point. She did it with him, I know it. Not my little girl. She's a whore. Uh, so it doesn't really pull any punches, you know, I mean, no. it's, it's sick and twisted in its own way, but still, it, you know. It still lacks the grit and yeah. sort of the brutality yeah, the, the, I agree. Of, of a lot of his other films. You're absolutely right. It's an interesting departure. The kid actors, I thought, did a great job. Um, I didn't recognize the kid who played Fool, and I don't know his name, um, but the, the girl who plays Alice, I don't know, this may have been... Uh, after your time, but she, that's A.J. Langer. She went on to be uh, Rayanne on My So-Called Life. Oh, really? Yeah, which, you know, I was a teenager at the time and very angsty, so I, I was totally into that show. Um, <laughs> and I loved her. She was great on that show. Uh, I was reading um, that she plays very convincingly, I, I think, a, a child of around 12 years old. She was actually 17 uh, when they filmed this. Really? Um, and the, the boy who plays Roach, who I assume was meant to be somewhere in his mid to late teens, was actually actually 27. No uh, way. When, yeah, 27 when they filmed it. And it was all three of their first films. And uh, I don't, you know, the the kid who played Fool, I, I don't know if he went on to do anything, but A.J. Langer went on to have a relatively successful career. Um, I just read the other day, randomly, that she's now married to like a duke or something. She's royalty now. Oh. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> um, and, and I know that I recognize the guy who played Roach. He's gone on to do lots of other stuff too. He's got a really recognizable face. He like, does. I can't think of anything specific. He, he looked really familiar to me I just couldn't place it yeah. you know that's funny it, 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 as an actress 
she had probably one of the most difficult roles in the movie. I mean, her job was 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 to look scared. Yeah. Um, to look um brutalized. Yeah, to, and to, to be brutalized. I mean, she was getting thrown around, thrown on beds, thrown against walls. There's one scene where, uh, the the mom, some of the carnage is is around on the floor, and as punishment, the mom makes Alice clean it up. And and in this shot, I you know I assume this was just uh, a lucky shot, but she the mom pushes her into this puddle of blood, uh, and AJ Langer. Uh, Slips and, and falls, takes a pretty nasty fall yeah, right on the back. right into it. <clears throat> and she's wearing that white dress, so right. it's even more, yeah. And it's very Cinderella like. She's yeah. like down there on the floor. Wicked her hands stepmother, and, sure. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tricky thing to pull off. And her transformation at the end, where she does finally get revenge on her mom, they burst through the stairs, um, they grab the mother, that gives her the opportunity to grab uh, the mother's knife and, uh, and ends up knifing her. Right. Um, it. But done not in this way of uh, that you'll sometimes see, where it's like she suddenly wakes up and suddenly turns and suddenly gets uh, some agency. She's still that damaged girl, yeah. you know, who is still very unsure of herself, but is starting to take some agency for her life. Right. And she just pulls it off marvelously. Yeah, I thought she did an excellent job. I thought, you know, overall, for it being kind of a, a cheesy, in a way, kind of little horror film, I, I felt like it felt like they were taking it seriously. Not too seriously. They were having fun. And it is a fun movie. There's a lot of comedy going on. You know, we were laughing at several parts throughout. Oh, yeah. Um, sometimes just because things seemed a little dated, but you know, there, there are jokes. There's definitely dark comedy in there, too, which I think is is really challenging to do. So that that impressed me. <clears throat> yeah, to take that really dark subject matter and find some humor in it when right. you're you know you're making implications of, of of rape and you're talking about incest right. and and this guy and this sort of sexual. There's a lot of sexual kind of stuff mm -hmm. in there. But um, yeah, it is it is interesting in that way. Um, the kind of movie I don't know. Do you think? A movie like this would be made now? You know, I don't know. Like you said before, I, th I think that it would... It, no, not just like this. I think that if this movie were made again today, that it would be uh, either for the PG-13 crowd. Um, I've been trying to think uh, of uh, similar things. Like, have you ever seen... It's relatively recent. The Hole, where yes. these kids find a hole in their basement. You're right. This um, was very much like The Hole. Yeah, that kind of thing. And, and I feel like those movies are throwbacks to this kind of movie, but mm -hmm. you don't see them very much. And we're kind of in an interesting position. You know, who knows what's going to happen now that Craven has passed, unfortunately. But uh, he had several projects in development, and one of those was a TV series uh, based on the children under the stairs, or the people under the stairs. For sci-fi, right? I believe so. sci-fi channel? And I'll be really interested to see what they do with that, because how I don't you... really see how this plays into a serial kind of thing. I don't see how mm. you take this into a TV series that's nothing more than a mini You know, yeah. like, how do you keep this going for seasons and seasons? I mean, it all is in this house. Well, well, and, you know, limited series are really popular right now, so maybe that's the direction they'll go. Who knows? That'll um, be interesting. Yeah. Well, I miss him already. I was kind of bothered more than I thought I would be just by the notion that he passed, you know, and to hear that it was brain cancer. I mean, did anybody really know? I didn't know, family? and I, I feel like I kind of keep up on these things. I, I had no idea. I didn't even know he was ill. In fact, I didn't even realize his age. I mean, he, he was up there. He was in his 70s. I mean, it's still tragic that he's gone, but... Um, but prolific, yeah, up prolific. to the end. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I really think that, you know, had his health not failed him, that he probably would have continued putting stuff out there that would have continued to be popular. And, you know, he had... I don't even want to call him hits and misses because I appreciate everything he's done. But he had some really successful stuff like the, the Scream franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, a couple of other big names. Uh, but he also made a lot of movies that didn't get that kind of attention. They are, a, you know... 
all of them, whether I particularly like them or not. For example, I don't particularly enjoy watching Last House on the Left. It's a little brutal for me. It is to me, too. Um, but I appreciate what he did there. I mean, uh, it's it's really interesting filmmaking and, and worth a watch, you know, for that reason alone, if, if nothing else. Almost a forerunner to torture porn, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really ahead of his time. I mean, really broke some ground with everything he did. Yeah. Uh, well, most cool of it. Yeah. Cool guy. Well, we're going to be talking more about Wes Craven as the next couple weeks go on. We're sure. going to watch a couple more of his films. Do you have any more thoughts, about, uh, closing thoughts about this movie? Again, it's 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 one of those movies that reminds me of my childhood, not just because it's from my childhood, but because of the genre. Um, it's something that I miss, you know, and, and I've got uh, little nieces and nephews, and I, I can't wait until they're old enough if hopefully my sister will allow me to, to show them these kind of movies because I feel like they're not getting that. Uh, in mainstream culture right now and I, I hope that they can appreciate them the same way that I did I guess we'll have to wait and see yeah that's great well thank you for bringing up this film this is a great one again I uh, hadn't seen it in such a long time um, enjoyed it more now I think than I really did before and it's great to see a master at work absolutely all right well um, please tune in with us again next week when we're going to be bringing you another Wes Craven horror film and also if you liked uh, what you heard today please share this podcast with your friends please uh, until next week this is Todd this is Craig and we are two guys in a chainsaw. Yeah.